This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Coming up. Everybody that knows Dylan knows how to remember him, you know, because he, he really brought a lot of joy into everybody's life, and he's unforgettable. And, and that's what we'll focus on. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Earlier this year, we covered the story of Dylan Redwine, a 13-year-old boy who went missing in 2012 while visiting his father in Vallecito, Colorado. Mark Redwine says he last saw his son Dylan sleeping on his pillow on this couch in this house. Dylan Redwine's partial remains were discovered up the road from his father's home in June of 2013, and his skull was discovered two years later and five miles away. Just keep your hands up. Don't move, man, okay? Do not move. Drop cigarette. Dylan's father, Mark Redwine, was later charged with second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. And the case finally went to trial earlier this summer. There have been numerous delays in the trial over the years, as you know, the most recent one last year because of the COVID pandemic. But now, Mark Redwine is finally facing a jury of his peers. Janet Orovitz joins us once again from Nine News in Denver. Janet, you've been exhaustively covering Mark Redwine's trial out in Colorado, and there's a lot that I want to get into. But first, can you give us a quick recap on what all we knew about this case heading into the trial? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, back in November 2012, Dylan Redwine was 13 when he uh, was on a court-ordered visit with his father, Mark Redwine, in Durango, Colorado. Um, and that day he had just arrived there from the Denver Metro area where he had lived with his mom. And that is the very last day, um, anyone heard from him. Um, and as you mentioned, 2013, about eight months later, some of his partial remains were found up on middle mountain. Additional remains were found in 27 or 2015. And then it wasn't until 2017 that a grand jury came back with an indictment Uh, against his father, Mark. The timeline that you laid out, we're talking about a case that has spanned almost a decade at this point. Dylan Redwine first went missing in 2012. That's that's about nine years ago. It wasn't until 2017, as you mentioned, that Mark Redwine was charged. And then it took another four years for this to go to trial from there. Why has all of this taken such a long time? Yeah, I mean, there's been various things, I think, right from the beginning. Um, Obviously, the delay in finding his remains, I think the initial remains, there really wasn't enough there for investigators to kind of determine any cause of death. So I think in 2015, when they found the skull, that kind of gave the the case some new energy. Um, And then 2017 was the indictment. And then from there, you know, there were various delays over the years. One of them was at one point, Mark Redwine's uh, defense attorney was arrested on a domestic violence charge. (laughs) So that delayed things. Um, And then obviously this past year with the COVID-19 pandemic, The trial was delayed uh, numerous times um, because of that. So those are some of the varying factors as to why this has been a long, um, 
coming up on nine years here in November. And something else that's probably worth noting is that this was not the first trial. What happened the last time around when Mark Redwine went on trial in 2020? Yeah, actually, there were um, two separate mistrials, kind of kind of back-to-back. I believe one was in October and one was in December. Um, one, they had just started jury selection, um, and then there were concerns over um, uh, COVID-19 exposure to one of the defense attorneys, and so they decided to just call it quits at that point. Uh, and then I believe the other time, I think it was in December, it got underway, and then due to just the rising... COVID-19 cases, all jury trials were suspended. At that time, jury selection had actually gotten underway um, and they halted it. And so it ended up not happening until end of June this year. And this time around, we got the full thing. Take us through this trial that started then on June 21st. What did we learn that first day through opening statements about the story that the prosecution was planning to lay out and then the story that the defense was going to, to try to tell to counter that? Yeah, so prosecutors, their uh, their case was basically that Dylan Redwine went there to visit his father. It was obvious um, from the months leading up to this that Dylan did not want to be there. Um, you know, he was excited to go there to visit some of his old friends, but he hadn't talked to his father in months. Um, I think since August it was, and the day that his mom was granted full custody is when his dad booked this, uh, court ordered trip. Um, and so they kind of said, Hey, he was there. Dylan didn't want to be there. The two of them got into some type of argument that night and that Dylan was then killed by Mark during this confrontation. Without pointing to a specific motive, prosecutors said Dylan and his father, Mark had a stormy relationship that just boiled over. And then the defense, their stance was, look, the evidence is scant on this. We don't know that there was any type of confrontation here. And so their stance was, hey, Dylan, he left on his own. He didn't want to be there. He was a 13-year-old boy. And that perhaps they suggested he went up into a trail. There was a lot of talk about the waterfall trail. That Maybe he went up to this trail and then maybe had to come to an animal attack of some kind uh, up there in the wilderness. And that is how his remains uh, ended up there on the mountain. Redwine's lawyer said quite simply that Mark did not murder his son, suggesting that Dylan may have been killed by wild animals when he wandered into the woods near his father's home nine years ago. Hmm. The prosecution then begins to call witnesses. It's on day three of the trial. We actually hear testimony from Elaine Hall, the mother of Dylan Redwine and Mark Redwine's ex-wife. What stood out to you from her testimony that day? Uh, You know, I think a lot of her testimony centered on, you know, the lack of concern that she said Mark Redwine had that day reporting her son missing. You know, she was hours away up here in the Denver metro area. And, you know, she says, why are you texting me? Like, why would I know where our son is? Because Mark Redwine had texted her saying, do you know where Dylan is? And, and, you know, so she was sort of like, this is absurd. Why, you know, like, why would I know um, where he is. Um, and so I think that was a lot of the stuff that she touched on is that, you know, they got in a car and they drove all these hours immediately to go down there, um, to try and look for Dylan. And it seemed like Mark was very nonchalant about the whole thing. I, there was even text messages that she sent to him around that time that said, I, this, you know, direct quote, I am so suspicious of you right now. 
Hmm. So right from the start, she was um, suspicious of her her ex-husband. I mean, I was frantic. Like I said earlier, it was so surreal. You don't expect anything like this to happen to you. And, you know, I figured he was safe because he was with his dad. And I just, I was devastated that no one knew where my son was. What else will we learn? What other key moments would there be over the next couple of weeks before the prosecution rests its case? I would say one of the big things that stuck out to me was a lot of the electronic communication, cell phone data that they went over um, because they were able to tell us through, you know, Dylan, Dylan's um, Facebook page, cell phone, all of that, that his last outgoing communication to anyone was a text message sent at 9.37, very specific, on November 18th. Um, and so that is a time when, even by Mark Redwine's own admission, he says the two of them were together at his home between 9.30 and 10 o'clock that night. And that's the last time anyone outside of that house um, has any type of communication uh, from Dylan Redwine. So... That was a key to kind of painting the timeline from prosecutors. Um, the other kind of key piece of evidence, I alluded to it earlier, but was the, the skull that wasn't found until 2015. Um, because prior to that, you know, there honestly wasn't very much remains found. Most, you know, bones, there was no kind of fleshy portion. It was all bones. Um, and prior to 2015's discovery, none of those bones had any indication of anything other than animal scavenging, scratching, biting on them. But when they found the skull, there was a fracture on it above the left, um, above Dylan's left eye. So that was one key piece of evidence. And then also for the prosecution, this was the first time after covering the trial figures, I had heard this, um, the forensic anthropologist for the prosecution testified that she found what she described as sharp, two sharp force injuries um, on the skull that she believed were caused by a knife or some other type of object. Um, and they were, to me, they were in kind of an odd area, but um, they were on the skull, the right side, I believe, under kind of like in front of where your earlobe would be um, on the skull. So those were kind of two big things, uh, I think, that were important to the prosecution's case. As they weave this story together and lay out this timeline, what's the actual motive that prosecutors were alleging? Why did they say Mark Redwine would have wanted to kill his son? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obvious before um, the visit here that the family is, dynamic is, is pretty tense. Um, you know, Elaine, who is Dylan's mother, and Mark are, are pretty estranged. Um, Dylan Redwine had an older brother, Corey, you know, he was in his early 20s at the time, so he really didn't have a relationship with Mark Redwine because, you know, he didn't have to because he was an adult. He could choose that. So I think the prosecution motive was that, you know, Mark Redwine was, like, alone. He was kind of sort of being abandoned by most of his family. And Dylan was kind of that last little piece that he could hang on to because he was 13. He still had to, you know, kind of at the mercy of the court, he had to do this visit. So I think that was his kind of desperation to hold on to this last piece of his family. And then the prosecution alleged that there were these photos um, that <laughs> of Mark Redwine that were not exactly, um, they kept calling them compromising pictures, 
they show Mark Redwine, um, you know, wearing women's clothing. He's actually eating feces out of a diaper. Um, and we know that Dylan had seen these photos a couple months prior in August of that year. And so the prosecution alleged that Dylan had confronted his dad about these photos. And that was sort of the motive for an argument. Um, of course, we weren't there, so we don't know, you know, if, if he ever did that, but that was what the prosecution was alleging. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Over the next week or so, then we see the defense make its case and try to poke reasonable doubt into the story that the prosecution's telling. Take us through some of the more significant moments that we see during this part of the trial. Yeah. So as I mentioned, a big part of the defense was that they they wanted to say Dylan really went out there on his own um, and that he just succumbed to the wild wildlife up there on Middle Mountain. Um, so, you know, we heard from a lot of wildlife experts, um, kind of talking about what animal scavenging would look like. They had their own forensic anthropologist who kind of contradicted, um, whether or not these markings that the prosecution expert said were sharp force injuries, you know, his expert opinion said, no, I believe those are actually caused by animal teeth or claws, um, they also tried to attack on the prosecution side. They had brought in uh, cadaver dogs that uh, picked up some scents in, in Mark's house and uh, his car and a couple other places. And, you know, the defense said, no, that's junk science. Um, and then one of the other things is that this is something the defense kind of kind of kept harping on was there. There was this Miller Lite beer can. Um, that was found up on Middle Mountain in an area near where some of Dylan's remains were found. And the defense had this tested. It didn't come back to any of the key players in the case, such as, you know, uh, Dylan's dad, his brother, not Dylan, um, or his mom, or I think they also tested it for Mark Mark Redwine's brother. But they did find DNA on this Miller Lite can to some unknown male. So I think they kind of used this, hey, this can was found in this area, it has some unknown man's DNA and try to try, try to put somebody else um, maybe in the area where Dylan's remains were found. Something else that they spend some time addressing is that there, there was some blood evidence, drops of Dylan's blood found in Mark Redwine's home. What do defense witnesses say about that evidence? How do they explain it? Yeah, the blood evidence was also a big thing. Um, there honestly wasn't that much of it. Um, I, you know, I guess, you know, you typically kind of think of somebody is, is killed in some place that there would be 
you know, kind of blood everywhere. Um, that certainly wasn't the case in this house. There was a little bit on the couch, on the coffee table, a little bit on the floor. Um, and so the defense kind of tried to say, look, it's so little blood, but that could have been there from any point. Um, you know, he could have had like, I don't know, cut his finger and had that blood or maybe a nosebleed. You know, they tried to say it's not really enough blood for this type of crime. Um, they had an expert come in about blood spatter and they tried to talk about, yeah, there's not enough, no evidence in this room of like a trauma that, you know, you'd have more spatter all over the room, which they did not have. So those were some of the, the arguments they tried to say, it's just simply not enough blood. It could have been put there passively, maybe during prior visits that Dylan made, um, to the house and not necessarily on that day, November 18th, when Dylan was there. The trial for Mark Redwine, the man accused of killing his 12-year-old son, will head to closing arguments next, possibly tomorrow. After four weeks of testimony... Both sides the then deliver their closing today. arguments on July 15th. For anyone doing the math, that's three and a half weeks after the trial began. How long does it take from there to get a verdict, and what does the jury ultimately decide? Yeah, you know, surprisingly, they, you know, they heard from more than 50 witnesses over this three-week period. Um, and so they got the case, I think, late on a, I think it was Thursday. Um, on that day, they, you know, they met for maybe a half hour before going home. And the next day on a Friday, they started around 8.30 that morning, around 1.45 that afternoon. We got word there was a jury question. So we all kind of gathered back for this jury question. They wanted a copy of the FBI. Um, Agent Grossing testified they wanted a, a copy a transcript of his testimony and pretty much they, you know, they had the little session, the judge, the court denied that they weren't going to give it to the jury. And, you know, that wrapped up. And then we got word right then around two o'clock on the Friday that the jury had a verdict. So it was only about six hours um, mm. after all those weeks of testimony that the jury took to come back to a verdict. The court has been informed that the jury has reached the, uh, Verdict. And what was that that verdict that they came back with? Yeah, the verdict was actually it was guilty on both counts. So they found him guilty of second degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. So it was a unanimous verdict guilty on both charges. What does this guilty verdict then mean for Mark Rebwine as this moves into the sentencing phase? How much prison time could he be looking at now? Yeah. So until sentencing, which is set for October, he's currently being held without bail. So he's in Lapata County Jail right now. Um, and when sentencing happens in October, he faces up to 48 years in prison for the second degree murder charge. And it's 12 years for the child abuse resulting in death charge. So, and that's the maximum sentence for each. Um, it's possible they could be served concurrently. So at the same time, but you know, Mark Redwine's going to be, uh, he's 59 now. I believe he'll be 60 next month. So, you know, if you kind of do the math with those kind of numbers, like it seems like he'll probably be spending the rest of his life um, or most of it, if not all of it, uh, behind bars. We talked a little bit about just how long this trial was. And, you know, I think about Dylan's other family members and loved ones having to watch all of this unfold for weeks before finally seeing that verdict, not to mention that they've waited nine years. They've, they've been through mistrials. Uh, I know Dylan's mom and brother spoke to Nine News after the verdict was read. What did they say about 
this this awful nine year journey they've been on and and what it means to them to to finally see this verdict. Yeah, I, it was definitely emotional for them. I know when they read the verdict, I mean, before they read the verdict, the judge had admonished everyone to, you know, remain decorum in the courtroom, not make any noises. But of course, when that first guilty guilty verdict was read, there was this kind of gasp of, um, not, not quite a cheer, but a big kind of gasp in the courtroom there. Um, you could tell that it was relief. We, the jury, find the defendant, Mark Rodewine, guilty of count number one. I think, you know, both Corey, who is Dylan's older brother, and Elaine, they were obviously relieved that this has come to an end, um, or at least some closure on the court case. It's been a long nine years. It has been a very long nine years. Your thoughts when you heard that guilty verdict? You know, this this entire process has been surreal from the moment Dylan went missing until we found his remains. You know, we've lived in this world of, of, of not knowing what's what happened to my son. We all have speculations. I think the defense or the prosecution did a wonderful job in laying out what happened to my son in the last hours of his life. And I think it was pretty clear that the right verdict was given today. You know, one of their biggest things is, you know, they're at a point now with this verdict where they said, you know, we really want to focus now on Dylan's life and who he was and start getting back to talking about that because the past nine years that this has dragged on, like they have just been reliving like kind of the, from the moment he went missing to his remains found like all of the gruesome um, kind of details of his death over and over again. And so I think they're excited looking to the future where they can start talking about like how, how he was when he was alive and not how he was when he died. I'm ready to start remembering Dylan and his story rather than the gruesome details of, of his death. And I think it's important to carry on, you know, his story and, and try to prevent this from happening again. You know, we've got to stop viol violence in our families. And, you know, I, I hope this case, you know, helps people learn to deal with their anger and frustration in different ways because it this never should have happened to my son. Can you tell me your thoughts about your ex-husband right now? I think he's where he belongs and I really don't have an opinion either way of him. And can you tell me how you would like people to remember Dylan? Everybody that knows Dylan knows how to remember him, you know, because he, he really brought a lot of joy into everybody's life and he's unforgettable. And, and that's what we'll focus on. Janet Orovitz with Nine News in Denver. Thanks for sharing this story. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. We're here five days a week, Monday through Friday. So if you haven't already, hit subscribe or follow on whatever podcast app you're on right now. You can find more of our shows by heading over to vaultstudios.com or by searching Vault Studios on your podcast app. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. 
Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.